I'm Andrew Constantine, and this is A Stick With A Point. My guest today is Geoffrey Sharkey, who is the principal of the Royal Conservatoire of Scotland. Jeff, hello. Hello, Andrew. Great to be with you. Now, Jeff, you and I have um, known each other a while, and I've seen you in, in lots of different guises as a performing musician, as a composer, and um, as a director of musical educational institutions. And now you find yourself in Glasgow. How did that happen? Tell us about your roots, because you don't sound like you've got a Glaswegian accent. I'm a native Delawarean. And no one on this side of the pond had heard of that state until Joe Biden. So I can thank him for that. Um, most of my training uh, was in the United States. Uh, and I met my English wife, Alison Wells, at Yale. And we decided, in fact, she had a generous fellowship. She had to return to the United Kingdom. I went with her, got a Rotary scholarship to do an MPhil at Cambridge. Um, and we decided we'd start life in England. Uh, and I worked at two wonderful specialist music schools, first Wells Cathedral School, um, and then the Purcell School. And after 10 years or so, I was trying to get into higher education and just not being able to get the jobs. And I was fortunate that the then president of the Cleveland Institute of Music, David Cerrone, said, hey, that sounds like... Um, you know, transferable skills will give you a chance. And I became dean there for five years. And then Peabody came up and I was director there for eight years um, and really loved my time in the States. And at the same time, there was something I missed about Europe. And you'll know this, you've lived in both places. There, there's a difference to the, the way we breathe the phrase in Europe and America, and both have excitement and validity. Um, but there was something about the kind of slightly slower pace, more community nature making of art that attracted me with the thought of coming back. I knew my predecessor at this place in Scotland, John Wallace, an amazing trumpeter who'd um, been principal for 12 years. I'd seen him at a number of European conferences and heard about the variety of art forms that were happening here, which I can tell you about later. And when he said that he was retiring, I think I was probably the first application in. We wanted to come back to Europe. This place seemed really exciting. Mm -hmm. Well, I can I can quite understand that. It's a it's a gorgeous place, and um, you have wonderful countrysides within a stone's throw of, of the city. So that must be an attraction as well. Um, but let's be quite candid. In years gone by, the Scottish Conservatory, as it was, and uh, names before that was not deemed the most successful or attractive um, educational establishment for, for music and performing arts. Over the last couple of decades, that's been transformed and you're now way up there on, on some sort of pedestal. How did this happen and, and what do you do to maintain it? I think you're right, Andrew. I, I think back when I was teaching in England, for instance, at these specialist and we were sending kids to university or we were sending kids to music college. Um, most of them went to London. A lot went to the Royal Northern. 
I don't think I had anyone that thought, oh, I'll cross the border and go to Scotland back in that time, which was the 90s. I think John Wallace started this um, process, adding more art forms, um, starting a curricular reform that we've since built on that puts collaboration at the heart of everything that we do. And then when I came over, I wanted to give it a bit of an American swagger, some confidence, because there's something about Scots, they, they're anything but boastful. There's a, there's a saying over here, I knew your father, i.e. don't get heirs above your station. Um, and, you know, Americans, as you know, because you now live there, you know, love to talk about things when, when they're worth talking about. I, I made sure that we were hosting international conferences. We were celebrating the work that we were doing. We were leading in research outputs and conferences. So the world began to wake up to the kind of innovation that we were doing here. And when they started ranking performing arts institutions, that really helped us um, get better known. And for six out of the last seven years, we've been in the world top 10, as high as three. This year, we're five. Um, and we're in company of amazing institutions that we're proud to be in the company of. So I think number one this year is the Royal College of Music, and then Vienna, then the Juilliard, then Paris, then us. And there's just a whisker of a percentage tiny point. And the thing I, I'm kind of proud of is all the others are a lot wealthier than we are. So we're doing this on sheer chutzpah and creativity rather than a massive endowment, um, rich students or anything. So it, it's, it's something that we're proud of. There are so many topics within that answer that, that I want to try and break up and, and, um, and touch in this interview. I hope we can get to them all. But let's go back to the notion of collaboration. Collaboration, what, between art forms, with other institutions? What set you it's up? Mainly, I'll, I'll try to set this up. I once gave a talk in Qingdao in China. I did to their anniversary about conservatories. And they didn't necessarily like my talk because I talked about how conservatories nearly wrecked the arts. How they were brought in in the Victorian period. Um, you know, composers in the past didn't need them. They were brought in, I think Paris was the first because they wanted military bands. Uh, and then London came soon after. We weren't long after London, we're 1847. Then in America, every great city ha had an orchestra and a conservatory to feed the orchestra. And the conservatories began to become amazing centers of faithful recreation. Um, recreation of a solid technique to get into that orchestra. And that's a brilliant skill. But re recreation misses out you know, invention. It can if it's not if it's not taught in a in a thoughtful way, and so composers were a little bit on to one side, or they were a little bit at um, the university rather than the conservatoire. We want to put creation and recreation together, and do it in between our art forms. So every one of our dancers knows how to choreograph. I mean, every one of our actors can write their own play. Every one of our filmmakers can be a scriptwriter. We're teaching our classical musicians to improvise in a classical way or in a contemporary way. And not only to improvise amongst themselves, but our pianists, for instance, improvise while our dancers are improvising. Um, our production students are making, you know, designing sets. So the idea of design, the idea of production, the idea of having an artistic vision and coming up with the goods you need to produce that vision is what I think the modern artist needs. So we try to create space so that our art forms can learn from one another, learn from best practice, learn from the confidence 
that an actor has the moment they, str they stride across the boards or uh, the grace that a dancer has. Um, and we, we try to create set moments where that happens very naturally in the course of the year. So you really function across all the performing art forms, don't you? You mentioned film, dance, music, drama. Well, to give you the complete picture, we're, we're really three big schools. Um, we are the School of Music, which is classical music, jazz, opera, but also traditional music. So rooted in Scotland, but obviously Celtic and everywhere else. So we teach the bagpipes here. We teach the clarsac, we teach fiddling. Um, and I think that Scottish music is one of the secret sauces of not just our music school, but even our acting department, um, because it's all about a Cayley culture of, you've got an idea, let's dance to it. That's an Icelandic thing. Let me mix that with a Danish theme. And it's very freeing and sharing. And on the School of Drama, we teach acting, musical theater, contemporary performance practice, production arts, production technology, and filmmaking. Uh, and the, the other big thing we do is education. And Peabody, my last school, was also very big in education. That's something I'm really proud of, to try to aim for parity of esteem between education and performing. Because all of our artists are going to be teaching in some way, shape, or form. Um, and we want to give them the skills to do that. And the other big thing in Europe is research, artistic research. So it's not just musicology and theory. It can be any one of our artists that has a research question that they want answered to help aid their art form. Um, and that's something that uh, we participate quite actively in. How do you prevent tensions arising between the different schools within the school? Is there rivalry? There, well, they, you, yeah, there always will be a bit. It used to be quite rampant. Um, uh, when we were in our old premises in up through the 80s, the actors had a different entrance. They actually didn't know each other. Until I arrived, the director of acting wasn't on the same floor as the director of music. I put them next to each other um, so that there's much more collaboration. Um, we don't always get it right, but as principal, I've really tried to make sure I'm principal of all of it, that we celebrate it all. Um, we put people forward for different awards. We give them different platforms. Um, it's a lot to pay attention to, but I think we, we really try to mirror the arts that we see around us um, in Scotland. Um, and it's, it's young ensembles like the Red Note Ensemble, which is contemporary music-based Scottish ensemble, small theatres that are blurring the lines between art forms um, and blurring the labels. And we want to be at that cutting edge. So why does ranking matter to you? You said that this year you're fifth, last year you were third, whatever. Why does that matter in the grand scheme of things? Well, ultimately, it probably doesn't. Ultimately, it's the quality of education that you get. But where it does matter, I remember when I took the job, there were those on the East Coast that thought, you're going to Scotland? Where's that? Is that, you know, is that Viking? Uh, which I'd be proud if it was Viking. Um, and it, it just gives maybe a, a Californian or Ukrainian or Singaporean applicant, a, a sense of confidence um, that the institution they're going to is not only accredited and well-regarded, but is internationally among the best. Um, and often, a, you know, a Google search might be the way a young kid first starts looking, thinking, where do I want to do acting? Where do I want to do music? Um, so that kind of calling card helps. So it's a calling card for students, but um, it must, influence the faculty you're able to attract as well when there are openings there. Great artist who's also teaching, a great teacher. 
surely they're going to be more attracted if they if they see that you're attracting better students. It, it is a virtuous circle when it works mm. that way. So, mm. yeah, we've just had um, an advert an advert out for uh, an innovator in residence because we have an innovation studio as part of our research team. And I'm told we have an amazing group of unbelievable applicants. Um, and I'm just touched and moved that they want to work with us. And they're great artistic entrepreneurs. And to have them have a foothold with us will enhance our community. So I'm sure the reputation helps get that kind of level. So that's students and faculty. Um, one of the vexed questions I've always pondered about music education, education in general, I suppose, but particularly music education is, does it affect your funding? Um, and, and that's a, a topic in itself, isn't it? But do you, are you able to attract greater funding by having an enhanced reputation? I would love to hope so, but we're funded in a very complicated model that is both a wonderful blessing and a great challenge. So the Scottish government makes it free for a Scot to come here. It used to be they made it free for a Scot and a European to come here. And you can imagine that was glorious for us because someone from Poland, from Ukraine, from Hungary could come and be treated as a home student. But Brexit has put paid to that. So what the places that we used to be able to distribute to Scotland and Europe are now for Scotland only. That's a challenge because Scotland is an amazingly creative nation, but of only 5 million people about the population of the state of Maryland. Um, and the state of Maryland is not going to produce every bassoonist and violinist that you need. And indeed, if you've grown up in the state of Maryland, you might want to go to the state of Massachusetts to do your undergraduate study. The same way someone that did our juniors might say, you know, eight years of Glasgow, I'm heading to London. So it's very generous that they make it free for Scots. But, you know, we have to charge international fees um, outside the UK. We have a, we have a home fee for UK students and everything else is international. That international cost is still, I think, less than half the cost of an American education. Um, it's about 19,000 pounds, so that's about $25,000. I think a lot of American institutions are pushing $50,000 or so right now. So it's a good deal, um, but our fundraising is more nascent than certainly American uh, conservatoires and even London-based ones, and we're trying to grow that. And so you are actually able to do independent fundraising. Is that what you're saying? It's not exclusively state funding. No. It, in some ways, it'd be nice if it was. You know, some of our sister schools in the Netherlands or Germany are entirely state funded, including for foreigners. We're caught betwixt and between. We're state funded for Scots. Right. So as, as if you didn't have enough to deal with it, you now have to grow a development department, don't you? Is that um, something you take on? I definitely do. We're excited about that. Um, I've, I've never been afraid of fundraising and Peabody at Johns Hopkins was an amazing teaching tool for me. I mean, I learned everything from there. Now, obviously the European style, especially the Scottish style is a little bit different, not quite so forward leaning, but um, it was definitely helpful what I, what I learned from Peabody and Hopkins to bring to here. I guess folks in the UK don't really understand the, the scale of, um, the demands on students for, for raising uh, money and, and for parents as well to, to go to college in, uh, in this country. It really is quite horrendous. And uh, uh, I count myself so incredibly lucky that we managed to navigate that stage of our lives with our kids. And it's a, it's a huge burden. And you sometimes get to wonder if the institutions are really becoming 
almost industries within themselves and losing sight of their of their true purpose and and their true goal and i've often wondered that of music colleges as well and you've kind of answered the question i'm trying to pose here uh, already but it was true to say that people went to music college with aspirations of being a a soloist and if they weren't good enough to be a soloist b they'd work in some chamber music ensemble or orchestra or whatever there was a hierarchy of aspiration and it was of course unrealistic and was perpetuated by so many different factors for for decades you seem to have come through that helped your your students come through that and help them navigate that so where do you hope that your graduates go beyond beyond the conservatoire it's a really good question andrew and one of the things i'm thinking about we hosted here in glasgow at the cop 26 climate summit and our students are all over global climate change we have a sustainability committee we have a roof garden where we grow our own vegetables that we sell in our cafe we're trying to become a net zero carbon institution but beyond that we're also trying to you know influence the world for climate change and you know the story i was telling our net zero minister was you know while st andrews or university of edinburgh might invent the hydrogen transfer machine that you know powers um, your heat source pump i'm just making these words up um, we can change lives and minds you know i talked i told him about you know how smoking was um, phased out of Hollywood um, and not seen to be cool. And part of our strategy is, you know, James McAvoy in a jumper. He's our alum, James McAvoy. If in a film that he's in, he puts on a jumper instead of turning the heat up. If he rides a bicycle instead of driving a V8 engine car, little subtle changes like that can influence behaviors. So getting back to your question, I think, you know, the, the dream of a musician today is not the dream that it would have been in 1979. To be a globe-trotting musician is not very green. Um, a lot of them want to, uh, a lot of our artists want to make a difference where they live artistically. They want to make a difference pedagogically. They want to help communities. I look at our, um, our most famous Scott Nicola Benedetti, who at the height of her performing career has decided she's going to, well, was offered the chance to run the Edinburgh Music Festival. Um, and she has this Benedetti Foundation that partners with us um, in, in helping education. So she's that kind of modern artist that wants to make a difference where she lives. Um, and giving young people the tools to have that varied career. And that it's so interesting. I feel the measures of success when you and I were growing up was, did you do a Wigmore? Did you do a South Bank? Have you got a Carnegie debut? It's not the same anymore. Of course, those places are valuable. We want to play in them. But it's also, are you making a difference at that local hospice? Are you making a difference with your education work? And you know, here in Scotland, we have highlands and islands. Are we able to reach the Isle of Isla consistently to help with their music training, to help with their acting training? All these things are things our graduates are caring about. Um, and I don't think the globetrotting idea is what they want to do anymore. And I think that's going to filter through the way orchestras behave, the way chamber ensembles behave, the way acting troops behave, etc. I think that's incredibly enlightened, Jeff. And um, I'm going to bottle that answer and, and take it with me to a, a number of places in the future. I, I love the way you talk about making an impact 
locally, that people want to do it for their own communities. And that's something that, as you say, when we were growing up, that wasn't that wasn't part of your aspirations. And I can't begin to imagine the number of, of lives and careers that were, let's say, curtailed or, or, or damaged because they were unrealistic. And, and it's, it's fantastic to see that you're you're helping people find a new direction and something that's going to be much more ful fulfilling to them in the long run. Um, would you say that that's typical of your industry, for want of a better term? Are all colleges going that way? It's interesting. I, I feel we're part of, I've had it, we're not only part of Conservatoires UK, but I had us join the Nordic Association of Conservatoires. Because in Scotland, certainly in the north of Scotland, we're closer to Norway than we are to London. And I think we have this in common with Norwegian, Swedish, Finnish, Estonian institutions that are really trying to be forward leaning. What is the role of the artist in society? And in everything, you know, to add to what I said earlier, that doesn't mean we're doing anything in a half baked way. Everything that we do, every performance, if it's at a hospice or it's at the Whitmore Hall, if it's in collaboration with the dancer or it's just solo violin is meant to be at the highest of levels. This is not, oh, I don't care about this stuff. It's caring deeply about all of it. And I think when we were growing up, you were right, careers curtailed with a disparaging word, with a, you know, a cutting, oh, well, you know, they're just doing something locally. They're, they're not, and we would retort, they're not burning up the world's carbon going from Tokyo to Beijing and um, all that. So I, I do think things are changing for the good. And we have that in common with a lot of Northern European institutions. So, Jeff, it sounds like you're you're making um, a huge impact, if I can say. You're far too modest to even suggest this. A huge impact on the conservatoire there in Glasgow. Um, do you think that you you have uh, a responsibility to, to shape the, the policy, the mission of the conservatoire, or is that shared with a governing body there? Oh, it's definitely shared. It's not the role of one person. I have a terrific senior team, a terrific deputy principal, wonderful heads of these schools. And I also have a very engaged governing body. And again, this is a contrast with American governing bodies, American boards you often get on by virtue of giving. Here you get on because it's about um, audit. It's about constructive questioning of what you're doing. And our governors are absolutely involved in strategic planning. And we're fortunate and we have them from all manner of background, um, arts background, financial background, audit background. They're a very thoughtful team that's not specifically engaged in fundraising. I'd like them to be a little bit more so. We have a development committee there, but that's a fundamental difference. In, in America, you got on a board because you gave, but did that mean you necessarily had the intellectual interest to help shape the vision of the school? Not in some cases, yes, it might have. But in other cases, it you know could cause conflict, as we saw you know in Juilliard, it was playing out in the pages of the New York Times. Mm -hmm. It really is quite a difference, isn't it? Um, I, I know there have been many boards over here where people have felt as though they join a particular board because it looks good on their on their resume, um, or it's another box to tick, or their employer says you need to do this. We need to have somebody on that board. Whereas it sounds as though your your board personnel are more committed and they have a a greater belief in, in what your mission is. So that must be fantastic. Well, I'm lucky. It, it, it has, you know, it's not always been easy, but we've really worked to 
craft the board. We, you know, we use an outside search agent. Um, we try to get a balance of diversity and of all kinds on the board. Um, and I think that makes a big difference because they become a partner in this. So I am most definitely not alone in thinking this through, but I do find it's great to bounce these ideas off um, my colleagues. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting how in this country, in orchestras in particular, people say that the nominating committee is perhaps the most important committee for the organization. That's the group of people who who bring suggested new board members um, to the greater board to to uh, assess them and, and consider consider them for membership. And I've been so fortunate, both orchestras, I'm music director at, that we have incredibly active, incredibly involved board members who truly believe in what we're doing and um, uh, are just there for the ride. It's it's great. It's wonderful to see. It that. makes and such a difference, doesn't it? That means oh, you're able to succeed. Yes. Yeah. We're very lucky. Now, Jeff, what do you see as the future for, for the Conservatoire in particular? Well, I have dreams of being a bi-coastal conservatoire, um, but I can say that very greenly in Scotland because it's only an hour and a half or maybe an, even an hour to the other coast. It's Edinburgh. It's not like California to, um, to New York. Uh, there are, I, I think it's interesting. Much of the art is made in Glasgow and Glasgow is a phenomenal city. We're shaped by the fact that we're in Glasgow. Um, it's a working class city. And I think we're more innovative because we're here. But by not having a regular presence in Edinburgh, a lot of the capital doesn't know we exist. We're better known in places in New York than we are in Edinburgh. So if I can find a, a space where we could run some of our courses there uh, and, and attract to work in Scotland's capital as well as Scotland's creative city of Glasgow, I think that is something going forward. I think our next strategic plan, we're going to try to even get better at this collaboration. I think we added it and made people too busy. We stacked up the credits so that they don't have time to invent. I'm trying to get away from the idea that you must teach everyone everything. That's an old fashioned master and apprentice idea to say, you will learn everything from me and only then will I let you out. Um, and actually having education as a guide, as fuel for life, giving students the energy to think that they are actually a student forever. There's always a new way to play a piece, a new piece to learn, a new play to write. Um, that's a much healthier thing. And just giving them the space to do that uh, is something I see our curricular review doing. Um, I see partnerships becoming more important as prices skyrocket. Um, you know, if we can partner with our innovative ensembles, our innovative orchestras, our innovative theaters and opera companies to deliver on some things, whether it's physical premises, um, whether it's, um, you know, our contemporary, our local contemporary ensemble Red Note wants to work more closely with our students is doing so this week with all of our composers. And a big vision I have is I want us to become the National Film School. We already have a burgeoning film department. Um, we had a great visit here from Joe Russo, um, who was one of the brothers that directed Avengers Infinity Wars and Endgame. And he talked about how much he loves filming in Scotland and how much he loves a UK trained actor. Um, and more people are coming to Scotland because of the gorgeous countryside to film. And I want to make sure we're, we're capitalizing on that, not just for our actors, but our production students who are beautifully trained in the theatrical 
world, but I also want them to be, you know, Amazon and Apple ready, um, digitally ready. And I want that digital readiness actually to influence all of our art forms. So we combine that analog and digital. We're ready for whatever platforms we face. So I, I think that's the thrust of where I see the arts going. I see labels reducing. It's not that I'm a classical musician focusing on Baroque music, or I play contemporary music from, you know, Darmstadt, um, or I'm a trad musician, or I'm an actor. I, I, I see you are what what you require. You have you have certain talents and skills, and we try to give you complementary ones, um, so that you're not boxed in. You're not pigeonholed the way I felt a bit more pigeonholed in the eighties. I couldn't agree with you more. I, I think the whole concept of you must go there to learn everything, I must teach you everything, has left me and a lot of other people thinking I know nothing. <laughs> it, was such, it was such a burden, such a, a mess of stuff to take in, and you go through life thinking, I'm such a dismal failure. But we'll move on from my own inadequacies. Uh, oh, <laughs> I don't I, believe that. <laughs> which I've just announced to the world, but, but there we are. Um, and so that begs a question as well, doesn't it, Jeff, that um, if you're to achieve all of these things, uh, which is a fabulous vision, I'm so impressed with it. But what what are the things outside of your control that you wish were within your control? I mean, I don't just mean access to Elon Musk's bank account, but, but what are the things? Well, you know, I don't want to get overtly political, but Brexit was horribly damaging to us um, and and to our sense of being connected to the continent. And I've fought against it in every way, shape or form. I'm going to run to be vice president of the European Association of Conservatoires. That's the kind of Europe equivalent of NASM. I'm already on the council, but you know, I, I kept arguing to government that you think about classical music starting from Italian madrigals up through Germany and reaching the British Isles a little bit later. You think about Scottish traditional music, which is half Irish and half Danish and half Icelandic. You think about um, drama trends that may have started with Shakespeare and then are echoed in sister countries or the latest in contemporary ballet. Culture has been a joining force and Brexit was a dividing force. So I'm, I'm trying to find ways to overcome that. Um, that's outside my control, but um, we're hoping to have more scholarships to make it possible. The war on our doorstep um, is really frightening. Uh, I think we probably feel it a little more closely here than America and the polls feel it more closer than we feel it. Um, our government has announced that they will charge uh, Ukrainians only Scottish fees, which is effectively free um, for refugees. So if we can get them through the visa complications, we could make them study for free here. And I think that would be a noble thing for us to try to do um, to help Ukrainian refugees and also really enrich our community as well. So, Jeff, we're recording this interview in late April, and I, I want to ask you, uh, as a segue from that, are you seeing in Scotland a lot of refugees from Ukraine? Not yet. I hope to see more. My neighbours just take one. I think the UK was very slow to move in setting up the procedures for this. You know, I was in Krakow a month ago, and a city the same size as Glasgow has already taken in 200,000 refugees. We're taking in penny numbers. Um, because we make it really hard. Um, but at, at least Scotland has said we'll make it better education-wise. And, and that's something we want to build on. That's fantastic. I hadn't heard that. Uh, here in the US, we looked personally at, at how we would be able to help um, um, provide a home for, for refugees or whatever. And the whole process 
it's such a nightmare for people. Yes, they can they can apply for refugee status, but it appears they have to go through a, a two year clearing process to oh to be able to to come in. So I don't know if it'll ever happen um, over here, but um, good luck to you all over there. And it's it's very noble what you're doing. This has all got very serious, Jeff. I'm going to ask you some light questions to help you relax and go on and enjoy the rest of your day. Actually, it's um, it's late afternoon there, so I hope you'll be heading home before too long. But I want to ask you one question, which is when you're no longer with us in many, many years to come, what's the one thing you most want to be remembered for? That's an interesting question, you know, and I'm sure like you, it's evolved. When I was a kid, I wanted to be an astronaut and a concert pianist. And the astronaut quickly fell away, concert pianist too. Um, I don't compose very much anymore. I, I still try to be an active chamber musician, but I think I want to be remembered for advocating for the arts so that it can recreate the bonds of society. Uh, and if I can only do that in Glasgow, or if I can only do that in Scotland, I think we have forgotten as a human race how to talk to one another, um, how to wear masks or not wear masks without shouting, how to stop shooting one another. I think the pandemic has made everyone angrier and more fractious. And I think the arts are one of the last places left that we can share stories that show we actually are one species of humankind. Um, and if I can help create artists that can carry that message and make that happen and maybe heal a bit of society then that would be a good thing to be remembered for. Jeffrey Sharkey that's a, a wonderful answer and from everything you've told us today it sounds as though you're well on your way to achieving that so we're trying we're trying I appreciate it you have to come and see us I'd love to do just that so Jeffrey Sharkey principal of the Royal Conservatoire of Scotland thanks very much Thank you, Andrew. I'm Andrew Constantine, and you've been listening to A Stick with a Point.